Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the AWS Developers Podcast. My name is Brooke Jamison. I'm a... What's my job title? <laughs> Please leave this in. I'm a senior developer advocate. I also know my job title at AWS, and I am gatecrashing with limited success the AWS Developers Podcast again. We're here with the actual host, Dave Izbitsky. I just happen to show up. Actual real life host. <laughs> um, we're also joined with uh, Tim McNamara, who's a senior software development engineer at AWS Code Foundations and also Rust Extraordinaire. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Well, extraordinaire is maybe too strong, but thank you so much for the intro. It's, it's always really nice to chat about Rust. I kind of can't stop once you kind of hit me Hopefully, it's going to be a fun fun hour or so. That's the good thing about this podcast is the AWS Developer Podcast. So we can go on long technical tangents. And I, from what I've heard, that's why a lot of people listen to this podcast. So that's absolutely welcomed. Uh, one thing I really like to ask people is, what was your first job in tech? Oh, that's a really hard question to answer because my first experience with tech was kind of on the open source space. I am a self-taught developer. I came and I was one of these over-enthusiastic overachievers in like English and so forth at high school. And so I did like law and languages at uni and then came out with a master's degree in public policy, became a public servant, and then kind of very... Actually, I fell out of two restructures. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to give this public sector thing a bit of a pass. And I'm going to pick up another one of, uh, I guess you could call it the the family profession. My parents are both COBOL programmers from like the mid 70s. And Incredible. yeah, so, so I became a developer at a little, I, well, that was next. I... Well, I guess the first genuine tech job that I had was at the University of Auckland. I was working in the uh, National Supercomputing Center, and my job essentially wow. was to teach people high-performance computing. But there was a bunch of stuff kind of around there. I dabbled a bit with, like, am I going to be a Rails developer and kind of do my own thing for a while? Am I? And I had a couple of, like, actually, I think still are on my LinkedIn. Like, uh, I created a little baby company which was uh, essentially selling fractional carbon offsets so that you could, you know, if I was selling a coffee and I wanted to not buy a whole, let's say, whatever unit that they sell carbon in, probably, or carbon credits in, let's say, one unit, a coffee might be like 10, 000, one ten thousandth of that unit. I wrote some software, which was essentially a ledger. So I would buy one credit and then like carve that into small chunks and then you as a retailer could kind of add on the carbon offsets. It turns out, though, that's actually quite a difficult thing to do. And like, especially if you're trying to sell it as a business, because if you're a single person in like a solo startup kind of space, it tends to fall on its face um, with no revenue. And so, yeah. I look, I'm not. I'm still trying to figure I, out one I'm, ten thousandth of a carbon unit is. Right, I don't even right, know right. what a carbon unit is, Tim. Yeah. So I'm nodding at you because you're correct but I don't want it to be the case. Like, <laughs> like I would like this to be like, it sounds important. Obvious to, yeah. It's, oh yeah. It's, it's super it sounds important. really important. So because I want that, to know. Yeah. Okay. Well we can, let's, let's carve out some time to talk about yeah. carbon. Okay. So, right. It turns out that there is a big kind of philosophical decision or divide around people that like, 
is carbon offsetting essentially buying your way out of a problem without actually fundamentally changing the situation? I sort of came down on the defense of, look, so the idea is that if, so the atmosphere is one atmosphere, right? And so if I am a polluter and I can't change my business practices, but I can fund some project which is actually going to extract carbon out of the atmosphere, the net balance is that the the atmosphere is going to be better off. Yeah. Right. Okay. So this so it's is making the, sense. It's all connected. Yep. Right. Essentially, like we are breathing like the same bubble of air, and therefore, yep. um, you as a business. So what you could do as a business owner, like if you run an airplane company, uh, <laughs> like if you are a United or let's say British Airways or something, you need to buy fuel. Like you spend a lot of money on fuel. It's you also want to keep your planes in the air. So what you might do is say, well, I know that my engines are pumping a truckload or like a whole plane load, a jumbo jet load of jet fuel into the atmosphere every time they fly. So I could, I can actually like pay for a forest or I could pay for some other thing, which would actually suck a lot of that, those carbon molecules. Got it. Got it. Now, that's awesome. If if you're a retailer. You should make a startup on that. Right. It would be really, like if I was a retailer. And I wanted to like I knew that there was some carbon involved in me. I got a I've got a delivery truck. I've got a I could I could like add like two cents to the cost of the retail price and actually offset the carbon. But that would be a hard thing to do because I wouldn't know where to start. So if there was like some yeah. intermediary, that was the thing. <sighs> yeah. So that was kind of my first job in tech. It didn't work. It was um, it's it all political now too. And then that yeah. always makes the tech hard. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So eventually I kind of like folding it back into rust is the reason why I am into Rust, like like fanatical about this programming language, is because I think it's a genuine step forward for the entire software industry. It is making, and like if we talk about, if we even put like an AWS lens on this, we think in very broad strokes, like some of the, like Rust sits under the back end of like Lambda and Fargate. When some of the implementations that were swapped out from Java to Rust, this was a a material impact had a material impact on the the actual fleet of instances that needed to run the service and actually so we end up saving the business a lot of money on the orders of I don't know pick your x millions of dollars and then also we actually don't require as much energy and that is in itself a really massive sustainability win and that's yeah. why I'm like super pumped for us because you kind of get wins on all sides we get a an increased security story because it turns out that we are as humans kind of fallible and pretty bad at writing software that is bug free like this is proven to be very difficult to do and rust actually eliminates whole classes of bugs that have plagued the industry for like its existence we have sustainability benefits and so forth and like yeah so I guess in some kind of weird story arc or like very strange plot arc, I've kind of come back to potentially the, the original reason I got into tech, which is to save the world. Like it's just a small thing. Just that little one. <laughs> yeah, I definitely want to dive deeper into how it's used at AWS because I think that's something that I was really interested in when I started learning Rust. And there's a couple articles out there about it, but not really that 
many, I guess, but it was definitely super interesting to me, not just because I worked here, but because I know how many companies are also using these services. So I liked the idea that I was probably tangentially using Rust before I knew it. It made it seem less stressful to learn, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We will park the hard to learn thing just for the moment, by the way. <laughs> I have a response to that. But oh, I yeah. have ADD. Everything is hard to learn. Right. Um, okay. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a personal blight against right. Rust. No, 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 no. no. The, although brain. this, I think, is like one of like the chinks in the armor, essentially. Or, you know, like this is a bit of a soft spot for... At least me as someone who is, I suppose, an educator in Rust. Anyway, the question was, like, what on earth do you guys use it for? And I think we have had really, and I say we broadly, actually broader than AWS, Amazon itself has had some really amazing successes with Rust. I think the most, the one that's closest to everyone, everyone's home is actually the Prime Video client. So the actual thing that lives on your set-top box, or so on your smart TV, is actually written in Rust, compiled to WebAssembly, and boom, there it is on 8,000 different device types. By the way, again, all of these kind of same similar stories around increased performance and da 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 da, da. And then into AWS, we have, uh, we've had really strong success in some of the core infrastructure that sits underneath the public services. So AWS itself is a web services company, essentially. We use web services ubiquitously throughout the company uh, to actually deliver things for our customers. Now, those services are expensive to run. Yeah, so you can see, and so the biggest projects like S3, DynamoDB, CloudFront, uh, sorry, <laughs> EC2, Fargate, and Lambda are kind of where we've had really substantial but not yet public numbers on how impactful this is. And I think actually one of the things you hinted on just then was like, it, it doesn't look like you guys are pumping out a heap of blog posts and things about like where this is being used. And I want to address that also. Uh, me coming on the podcast is part of that story, um, but I'm hopeful that over time we can actually be a little bit more engaged or at least a little bit more visible and the other thing we've got uh some wins on would be actually really tiny things that will never be will never be pro public projects like little developer utilities so if i was to write something like some script that like pull down some data and like i'd, I'd call i'd use i'd use like a python for that and then i wanted to like send it like i just like upload it into a repository and just kind of forget it it turns out in three to five years time it's going to be really hard to like get all the dependencies to all like figure themselves out and like which version of Python am I in? I want to send this to like three or four people. And now a couple of people are on like M1 silicon MacBooks versus like x86 machines. And suddenly everything becomes a little bit more tricky. It turns out that our, a lot of our own like developer centric, like internal, internally centric developer toolings, tools are being rewritten in Rust. They run much faster, but more importantly, they're easier to, easier to distribute and they just kind of are invisible. Like these are things that we don't actually want to be, to have, to produce like CPU spikes. Like that's not actually that useful. Lastly, the use case that I think is most compelling and I'm, uh, would be Lambda. And in particularly because Rust is a compiled language 
And one of the characteristics is it's essentially native code. It runs super quick and containers shrink down really, really small. So if you are used to say the JVM or even like a Python or TypeScript, you need to actually package in with your, or the runtime will package in like the JavaScript interpreter, like V8, I think, and uh, it will run your script. Now it turns out that in the Rust world, your Lambda function could probably finish executing by the time that the interpreter has like loaded itself up and has started to read your script. Wow. I have so many questions. <clears throat> First, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. This is no, this is great because the audience, some of the, the most popular episodes are like, how does Amazon do things? Like when Claire was explaining how we do DevOps at Amazon, like there's a very, very popular episode. So thank you so much for sharing what you can share and you know, connecting with the audience this way. I think it's hugely important. So it is a developer podcast. Rust is a language that I'm sure people have heard of, but there may be a part of the audience who hasn't used it. And this is how I approach new languages. And so if you can frame it in this way, like, you know, I, I started with assembly and then this C thing came around, right? And so it was C and basic because I still had, had Commodore and stuff. And the promise of C that I thought was amazing. And I always, when I saw Java, I was like, C's been doing this forever is you could have a GCC compiler and then you could put it on any kind of metal that you needed. Right. right. Portable assembly, right? Right, right. And I always thought that was amazing. And then we kind of took a step backwards <laughs> as we went forward into these third level languages, but we've got great syntax and developer productivity. And so if you were going to explain Rust for someone who, you know, is used to programming languages, but now they're going to do, you know, file new project uh, and they're just starting up. What is the, every language has elegance, you know, what's the elegance of the language? What is its unique features? How does it feel to actually use as a developer? And when I see people like yourself who are excited using a language, to me, it's like, it makes me want to check out that language too. Nice. Okay. Right. So why, how would I explain Rust? Okay. One of the things that Rust historically, so Rust's origin story is really interesting. It was kind of forged from two worlds. You've kind of got the C, C++ systems background stuff. And essentially, Rust was created because Mozilla was facing this existential threat from Chrome. And it couldn't write fast Firefox. They really wanted concurrent parallel like rendering on the screen. And they needed, essentially, they decided, like, this is so hard for us to do in C++ that we're just going to invent a new language. <laughs> right. Like, like, that was the scale of the problem at which they faced. Like, we just literally cannot pay people enough. We can't put enough staff on this problem. It keeps breaking. Now, they hit physics. Yep. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out that it's tricky. <laughs> now, the functional world, like, the functional paradigm has some really ergonomic and, like, a really ergonomic and kind of expressive feature. So if you've ever explored like an ML or a Haskell, you'll be like, whoa, this thing is crazy. Uh, I've got pattern matching in here, like really, really powerful uh, macro system, or like even I'll say a Lisp, like with the macros, for example. Suddenly my type system is ridiculously powerful. I can actually eliminate whole classes of bugs. Now, it turns out, that Rust is kind of the fusion of those two worlds. There are a, in particular, so one of the things that is distinct from, say, a Python or a Java is that Rust does not have exceptions. So if something blows up, 
And let's say Java land, you'll kind of like, you know, the, the you'll be expected to have like an exception handler that will either handle the error or kind of propagate that along like further into the call stack. Rust does something different. It actually encodes the possibility that your program can have a problem in the function signature. And so errors are values. And then and you get this type, which could either be the happy path. Like it could be the good, the okay case, or it could be the error case. And the compiler will require that you have dealt with the error case. Otherwise the program will not compile. So Rust as a developer feels like the Rust compiler is being really pedantic. And you get this problem where you're kind of like, Argh! like, like I know that the error will not, will never happen. Yeah. Like, you like, just want to like, see it run. Yeah. Like exactly. Like, like for example, like you could fake, fake out being a file, but you have to use the file open API. So you're like, look, my memory, if, if, if the memory won't open the fake file, there are bigger problems. But the type system says, oh, no, no, you're pretending this to be, this, this is pretending to be a file. It looks a lot like a file to me. So you need to encounter, or at least deal with the fact that the file system could like be quite flaky. And it's super interesting, Tim, because it was like I learned, you know, I did, <clears throat> I was at Microsoft for a while and I was with .NET since 1.0 beta. And I was just taught that any kind of I.O., try catch blocks and you had to handle exceptions with an exception class, you know? And I was always like, why can't I just figure this out for me? Why am I always having to remember to put it? And it sounds like this is kind of that, you know? Yeah. yeah. Or um, my fun, my fun thing is like, I don't, I don't, I don't want to dump on Java or C sharp or go. So go. This is a safe, safe space. This is safe space. <laughs> We're amongst friends here. Um, <laughs> All languages are beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> maybe so as a professional go as a as someone who was like spent a couple of years in the go world as well i have opinions anyway um so one of the things that, that go will allow you to do is just kind of like say okay well that error will never happen rust will not do that it's much more particular it errors and on the side of chaos <laughs> potentially i mean that's one way yeah. of of looking at it right that you have so Rust can feel just a little bit, uh, I don't know, compared to like a Python, like it just feel a little bit more bureaucratic, let's say. Like you're always got to deal with, you can't just optionally say, look, today I don't want to worry about types. <laughs> like I just don't, like, but Python land or JavaScript, like none is hidden in so many places. Like null just appears out of nowhere, like kind of literally. It's and like suddenly, <laughs> Like it, none or like these these null values or not a number. Um, one of my faves. Yeah, it's a good. It's it's a well well named um thing. The actually, I could just I'm gonna do a very tiny plug for a book that I've written, and we actually unpack a floating point number. So one of the cool things about Rust yeah, is no, that no, no. talk can... talk about the book because I imagine developers listen to this and be like, this is pretty cool. I want to see it. I want to see how long the namespaces are in the libraries. <laughs> You know, the elegance yeah. of the word, all of that kind of stuff. And then the next question is going to be, where do I start? I'm a big fan. As a beginner, I love structured learning. And then I'll like kind of jump around, go through docs and experiment. So you've written a book for people that are starting with Rust that kind of gives this great overview, correct? Yes. Although I'm going to caveat it with 
a uh, so a, about like I have had multiple people saying this is the best book that I've ever seen in my life. And for example, like I occasionally look back to a Reddit thread, which is like uh, like I wouldn't be programming. Well, I can't remember the exact wording, but essentially, like Tim has like like this book has like given me a career. And um, well, I got to so, read it now so I can get a career. Yeah. Yeah, Dave, we've got it. We've got some slots for you here um, over in engineering. I don't know. Would you be interested? We need someone to really write bust because we need someone to like yeah. someone who knows about like writing, communicating, like writing there blog posts. Brooke, Brooke has been yeah like like nagging me about this. Anyway, Brooke so the has question... been quiet, but Brooke has actually coded in Rust, and I have not allegedly. I also made a TikTok about it, um, and everyone's really excited. I was like documenting learning Rust on my TikTok, and everyone nice. was very encouraging, which was wholesome. Yeah. Okay, so Rust in Action is really a book that is designed, or it was written under the expectation that essentially you would be going through the free materials online kind Got of it. either in parallel or beforehand. So I don't recommend going out and buying a paid book when there's really good free stuff available. What the free book does, like the official one on the website doesn't have, is like really worked examples. And I had this idea of, well, one of the things that we should really, in, like if I was a, like my background is in Python and data science. I did a whole bunch of machine learning and natural language processing. And that's one of the reasons I kind of like ended up at the university, for example. Uh, someone from like a dynamic programming language, but just background. And you get told about... <sighs> that this language is for systems programmers, or you need to know about like what a segmentation fault is, or I want to know what an aliasing rule is. Like there, like you suddenly get, you. there's two things that happen. One is you get this kind of freeze of uh, hesitancy because like that's, I don't know that stuff. Like am I, am I expected to, do I need to know all of this background material before I can participate in the language? My view is that you do not. Uh, and the Rust in Action sort of does two things. One is it teaches you Rust with examples. So like we build an NTP client to teach you how computers tell time. We build a CPU emulator to kind of explain how programming languages work. We uh, create a memory scanner that will just like go through your memory address space and like tell you about like, like what is address 74? Like what's there? Like let's go and find out. Nice. Uh, <laughs> Again, because I wanted to give people uh, some exposure to some of this terminology or kind of the cultural zeitgeist relating to, to systems programming to kind of just say that you're welcome here. It doesn't matter what your background is. Rust is a tool available to you, irrespective of where you come from. I'm really focused on the the top level slogan at the on the on the rust website that starts with empowering everyone and my book is an attempt to empower people that feel as though they know a little bit of programming but they actually don't think that they could uh feel welcome or at least feel comfortable within a space that has been designated just for let's say systems programming yeah and I think, so for people listening in, they might not realize, but Rust has the most wholesome online community I've ever seen. And the my favorite part about that community is my favorite thing about the Ruby community as well. And it's a lot of people just figuring it out. <laughs> 
And that's what I always really liked about people working in Ruby. Um, they would just figure it out. And it was this learning alongside everyone else sort of mindset. And that's definitely come across into Rust in a much bigger way. So that's something I really enjoyed but like the online space as well. So it's really good to see that's coming into your book as well, because I think it's super important for people to learn by doing as they're going. Yeah, 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 yeah. So that was kind of, so like you said, like, is it a really good overview to Rust? I think that is an extremely good compliment to other materials because people that learn Rust tend to, tend to be inquisitive, right? It's relatively rare that you will get a job like and be like, okay, today you've got to learn Rust. Like Rust is not at the, like the maturity level where there's a lot of legacy code written in the language. It's not as though you'll be... F- uh, so most people are kind of self-motivated and self-directed. And so as a writer, I kind of had that in mind that y- I shouldn't expect... Like I shouldn't come in out and compete directly, let's say, head on with the free resources. It's kind of going to do a disservice to my readers as well as to myself. And so what I really tried to do was create material that kind of sits in its own space. Yeah, it kind of be really complementary as like provides. So historically, most programming books will say, okay, we'll start with numbers and then we'll talk about strings and then we might like build things together. So we'll have like classes or structs or something. And then, or even if we're older, like we could talk about like records, for example. And then after that, we kind of like, we might talk about functions and high order, you know, and we kind of go through from top to bottom. I intentionally don't do that in Rust in Action. Instead, what we try to do is, okay, like here's a fun little project. Now, what is the minimum amount of the language that I need to learn in order to kind of achieve, to kind of like get it to work? And so... Some things are kind of not idiomatic rust, even. That's my problem, too. As I was learning these AWS certifications, right, I was like, I want to start taking all these. Every course I would go through, it's very enumerative, right? And you're going through. And I'd be like, okay, I know all this stuff. And then by the time I got to the end, I hadn't built anything. And I had just enumerated through different services that some of them may have been related, but they weren't shown to me in examples where they actually were related to actually build. And so I took a step back from that and I was like, I'm just going to start playing around and building things and downloading samples and doing like the AWS workshops and things like that. And it it was just a, a better way to learn. It's kind of like when you're using language, right? Like if you have to go to the bathroom and you're in a foreign country, you better know how to ask where the bathroom is. You know, and you'll never forget it again. But if it just was a list of like a thousand words that you had to memorize before you even went there, it's a very different experience. So I completely get what you're saying. Can, how can, where do I go with this right now? (laughs) Right. Okay. So if I want to go rest, what's the URL? Like, where do I bring it down? Is it in VS code? (laughs) I'm going to try this out. Okay. Brooke and I are going to write something. Look, if, if, if you want to live code with me, I can like talk you through we could do another episode or we could do something oh, else. Yeah, that sounds like... I've got a like, terrible YouTube well, channel. I'm coding thing, but it's ASMR and just noise of me like click-clicking <laughs> on a keyboard. Click, 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 click. <laughs> I'll get a mechanical keyboard just for the occasion. So oh, it's actually yeah. loud. It's funny when people are programming, you, you, you talk of ASMR, you, wind, you, you find out who actually talks to themselves. Right. I started seeing that like when pair programming became a thing. Um, and like, we were all in these like tight little cubes and it didn't matter. Like, even if you had to have, I was like, wow, people really, there's like talking the words out, 
like actually saying the function names and the API calls. I found out I'm not a self-talker. I'm very much in my head all the time, which is also a problem. But it's interesting how that works. You know, different people will be saying things while they're they're coding. It's actually pretty cool. It's like fingerprints. All right, go ahead. I'm I'm, I'm done with my (laughs) my awareness. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're totally fine. Like, we still haven't, I'm sure there are like six people still listening at this point. There are 10 people. There are so (laughs) many of us. (laughs) That's right. So uh, where do you start? Okay, so I want to tell you to start at rust-lang.org. Okay. Now. I'm going to add this to show notes. Okay, cool. And uh, if you have already, like, if... Like if you're listening to an AWS developer podcast, presumably you actually have already got a lot, a pretty strong inkling about like AWS, right? And so yeah, probably have the, the SDK installed. Yeah, right. So one, so the next thing that I would really encourage you to do is to, in fact, the way that I recommend that you should learn is to port your scripts written in Python for the Rust SDK. So AW, the the uh, and the reason why you want to do this is because you kind of already, you have a good understanding about the problem. You don't want to be learning a whole new problem domain and a new language at the same time. Like, it's like, you don't want to kind of overload yourself. Get something that's already working that you can kind of, and and do something, uh, go and upload something into an S3 bucket, get it uh, translated or uh, do text-to-speech with Polly or do whatever you want, and then kind of get the results. Because this kind of provides... A by the way, there is actually a cross service folder if you kind of dig for it in the documentation examples um, that I can probably link deep link to through the show notes. I can probably send yeah. it through. Yeah, send it to me. I'll add it. Uh, and so this is kind of the way that I would recommend that you get going. That you have little tiny utilities that just kind of expose you to a little bit more of the language each time. There will be. Uh, the only problem with this strategy is that there's actually a lot of Rust that you'll need to learn in order to kind of start. So in particular, the Rust SDK is really focused at like the extremely high performance use case. And that means we focus on asynchronous Rust, which adds like another layer of like learning that you've got to do. You don't have to unlearn like synchronous Rust, but there's some extra syntax in there. It means that things can just feel a little bit less elegant or or at least a little bit, there's just more syntax to learn. So there's more likelihood of bumping into say syntax errors or return values are kind of the wrong type or and things. And we need dot await in places and async keywords in places. And so uh, the way around this is to, yeah, start with kind of CLI utilities, find, so there is another, set of public util, uh, public resources called rustlings which are little tiny exercises i recommend like sharing them around it sounds like oh that's, i like the name they're called rustlings yeah they are like oh, brooke was exciting. mentioning her tiktok if you can find some friends and just kind of share and be like i'm having and like we've got like the rust community has a playground and you just pump the link up and people will kind of be more than willing to debug like or like say like i can get this to work and then I, 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 I yeah, I pretty, I'm, I'm quite. I, I recommend sharing and also describing the difficulties that you're having because sharing will often allow you to kind of because the problem with learning a programming language is there's so much, 
to learn before you can really get going. And it's extremely frustrating and people kind of fall away irritated. And I think Rust in particular is a little bit less, hold your hand a lot of the way. You'll find that the error messages, the error messages are really nice. Like with little underlines and little pictures saying, this is the problem that you need to fix. And Wait, I get little pictures? Well, little diagrams with arrows, but I oh. had this, I had, I had an, I had one, actually, I was talking about the async thing and it said like in exactly, so by the way, you've called this method, but you've imported the wrong version of the dependency. I think you need to check that your dependency is the right version. And I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, is that good? And I think, you know, async in a way I was doing that in windows eight, like in code. I, I imagine developers that are writing stuff are. They're used to async in a way. Look, I no one it, like look. I I have been like I've been on Linux since what like 2007, and I gotta say like IO completion ports are still a better paradigm for. Uh, I've got I got quite a few friends in Microsoft, and they'll be laughing at me because I said that. I think it's pretty competent languages. I remember when it got added to .NET. It's in JavaScript, and it's not so esoteric. Yeah, it's in it's in Python. Well, it that's would right. Cause it's, you to stumble over Rust. Yeah. The only thing that may cause you to stumble is that and because we had to be different like that naturally everyone has their own the rust implementation of async await is poll based and so back pressure is applied by simply not by within like the in, the internals of like the futures system the subsystem is that right. instead of instead of your future essentially pushing data kind of down the pipe you need to pull it out and this actually means that uh, we as the Rust community think this is actually a more elegant design, but it means that there are some kind of mental, essentially futures do nothing unless you ask them to do something. And so you kind of need to activate them. But ignoring that, <laughs> ignoring the fact that we do it opposite to everyone else, you will, uh, you'll find that a lot of the knowledge that you have gained in other runtimes maps quite well to Rust. Oh, there is one other thing that's a little bit... Um, odd about rust we don't have a runtime right so there's no interpreter or virtual machine running alongside your your program to actually like keep it going or manage garbage collection or manage memory on your behalf and the same thing is the true for asynchronous code so even though async and await exist as keywords in the rust language you actually still need to bolt in uh, an async runtime and this can be confusing oh, wow. for beginners because yeah. it's like well this is a choice that i am actually not equipped to make yeah so, like like it's like like okay <laughs> it's like being told okay you've just started now like you don't know you what need... you don't know that's yeah. right and it's like it feels like a very fundamental decision yeah uh, so here 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 is my very simple i don't i'm gonna say very biased view but i'm in sort of intentionally biased i would pick the one that... aren't we all yeah that's right Pick uh, a runtime called Tokyo. So that's T-O-K-I-O. And it's maintained. It turns out that the lead developers or lead maintainers are actually employed by AWS staff. It works really well with the AWS runtime. All of the internal Rust stuff, AWS and the rest of Amazon primarily, with a few asterisks and caveats around, use that runtime. And therefore, it's never going to go away, essentially, as long as AWS exists. <laughs> it's extremely good. That's such a good tip. Before I ask the actual closeout questions, I have one more thing on my notes that I honestly was looking for a way to weave in organically to the conversation, but that has not arisen and I refuse to leave it out. Um, 
One thing that I noticed in the Rust community was that everyone was setting the crab emoji, and I hoped and assumed that that was because it was a mascot. Turns out it is. Uh, for everyone playing along at home, the crab's name is actually Ferris, F-E-R-R-I-S. And I just went to the website because there is ruststation.net where you can learn about Ferris. <laughs> and turns out that it's because Ferris is like F-E-R-R-O-U-S uh, when something contains iron, which I simply love to see it. Before we close out, Tim, can you share any Ferris lore with us? One moment. He's going to have a Ferris. Does he have a real a show life and Ferris? Tell. It's crap. Oh I think it's a real life Ferris. So I got like a real life Ferris in my hand. Um, this is an audio medium, so I will do a description for those listening. We should know. Oh, let's cool. do a let's do a picture now that we'll share out, and then the audience can yeah. actually see that. Let's do it. Yeah, wait, wait, wait. screenshot. Yeah. Everybody yeah. smile. Let get Ferris up there. Wait, I'm oh, feeling oh, one, two, three. <laughs> Sorry, my computer is balking. It's, it's okay. not running on. Rust. Blame it on blame it on the computer. Yeah, that's right. It's no, no. The screenshot all... noise happened. Oh, I know. I know. Seconds you, after the actual thing. You are but the you are the genesis of the oh, sharing the whole images of us recording. It wouldn't have happened without you. So it's a, yeah. Anyway, so 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 Ferris actually has let's has a sister slash not. I'm not sure if there's a gender involved. Called it's sea urchin called. Oh gosh! I have to put links for all of this now. I love I know learning. Ferris is canonically gender fluid. I know that. That's right. That's right. I don't know about. Uh, this so there is. It's it's it called coro for like corrosion. Ah, so good. Ah. Uh, so okay. So the, the 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 name rust. Right. There's two. So we've kind of so rust iron feral. Uh, sorry. <clears throat> so the idea was like, oh, why like rust? Okay, we need like a name for the community. Is it going to be like? Like rest, Rastafarian. It's like, well, we can't really like that's actually cultural appropriation. So let's not worry about disparaging someone's religion. So we could go for Rustation. Like it's a bit of a long-ish shot, and people are kind of leaning into this Rustation thing. So that's what the crab angle is there. And so, well, okay, so the crab, the spikes at the top, it look uh, they look a lot like a gear. Oh right, I didn't even think of that. Oh, he's got another prop, oh. a show and tell. So it turns out I got a birthday present, and that was a laser um, cut steel rust. Um, I love this about Tim because I'm a big fan of show if you can instead of tell. I'm constantly like, it works well on the on the on on the audio medium, right? (laughs) Visual aids, yes. (laughs) Right, and 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 so like like and and then it's like okay, we're now restations. Okay, that's fine. So ferrum is Latin for rust. That's where. Uh, uh, for iron, that's where Ferris wheel comes from. That's why it's called a Ferris wheel because it's an iron uh-huh. wheel. And so Ferris the crab is a rust station. But but wait, there's more. There's like a second origin story for the name. Uh, if you, it's slightly, it's intentionally ambiguous who Graydon, what what Graydon actually named Rust after, because a competing theory that he has actually put out himself is that it's named after a particular type of fungus. Now, a rust, if you are into horticulture, is like a particularly nasty type of fungus that like essentially is like really from like a biological point of view is kind of this really amazing organism that seems to be in like like a super organism. Like I'm fairly certain that it acts as though it's in one, but actually it's got lots of things going and it's almost impossible to kill and it kind of keeps going forever. And those are kind of some of the qualities that you wanted from a programming language. But yeah, so that's 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 all I know about Ferris. By the way, I picked this Ferris up from reInvent. 
at the open source booth. Um, Everybody yeah. got toys at Reed, man. Brooke got co- collectible trading cards. And oh, I didn't get so this, I got nothing. No, I got my trading cards from Linda, who got them for Reed. <laughs> ah, okay. We'll have to, we're going to have to, and I heard. I'll bring my own swag this year. It'll be. Victoria may have multiple. Really? Too. So I don't have cool yeah. stuff. I don't. I this was the this this was kind of by accident because I know because I was going so they bought some Rust stuff um, to the open oh. source and modern applications booth area which is where I spent most of the week just well we out. will we will set you up with some podcast swag I got to get you t shirts I have I have a hologram stickers nice. here and I was handing these out at at reinvent yeah so we we got buttons. Love it. These were on, so you can use this on your next little lanyard. Yes, please. I yeah. Again, we're we're all good with. So <laughs> Dave just showed me a sticker and a, a magnet. <laughs> okay, and so uh, uh, close out questions. Is that is that where we're at? Is that the time? That's where we're at. Is there anything you would like to plug last minute? Anything that you wish people would click on first, other than rust-lang.org when they're getting started after this episode? Rust is now in the AWS Developer Center. So go, it's like there and saying you can, uh, and please click, people look at the click links and track and try to, to and like, please. I'll click on it. Thanks, man. I really need some energy on the, uh, I just clicked on it for you and I hit refresh. Oh, I love it. It's gonna go, it's gonna send the counter through the roof. Like the, the, That's right. <laughs> the 10 slash six people left. <laughs> I've got to get at least two more clicks on this link. And uh, there are dozens of us, dozens. <laughs> you love Rust. The, now, if you happen to be in Australia, there is an event coming up. It's called the AWS Summit. And yes. I'm giving a talk called Build on AWS with Rust. Now, so in-person registrations have closed. However, there are still like live stream registrations. And you're like, oh, I don't want to hang. I had enough of live streams. I'm sick of it. Please sign up anyway. It's really good for the stats. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, no, it also, also, like, the live events are so good to be able to watch them back because I never actually want to watch the technical content even when I'm at the event right. in person. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. sign up, and that way you can, you've got the recording available. You have like first dibs on the recording uh, or the live stream, if you would prefer. And by the way, I would hit me on the socials. Like, if you are interested in Rust at AWS, do so. Um, Dave will have my Twitter, I'm sure, and a bunch of other links available. You can normally find me as Tim Clicks online. Make uh, sure it's in the show notes. Yeah, nice one. But that's everything, Brock. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. This has been so good. I know we're going to have so many good questions after this as well, which is what I'm looking forward to the most out of everything, I think. And this was great. Thank you for spending the time. And you're you're welcome back anytime. We need to, we need to talk even more about this. Uh, I think this is a great overview for people to start. And I love finding out kind of the community, the culture of a programming language, and scenarios of it being used today. So you, you, you've you shared all of that. And uh, I, I truly appreciate your time. Thank you so much. That's all good. The I am not cool enough for TikTok. So not I can't yet. follow you. We don't, we don't <laughs> have to be. Brooke will be cool enough for us. Because I was doing these little interviews with everyone asking them in their first job in tech. Uh, my colleague, Seth Elliott, that was his first TikTok. Also... Um, Rob from one of the heroes. It was his first TikTok as well. 
Uh, also, Curtis Evans, who's a developer advocate. It was his first TikTok as well. So there's always wow. time. Is it right? <laughs> you don't have to dance. I don't dance in my TikToks. They're tech-focused. Or there's one that's just three full minutes of me um, unpacking a machine learning paper, and somehow over a quarter of a million people watched that. <laughs> people loved it, which is don't understand the platform. I just keep posting there. So. Okay. Okay. Well, that's an inter- fascinating. Okay. There's an well, audience for everything, is what TikTok taught me. Yeah. Wasn't you? Didn't you have something go viral where you were talking about Scrum? You were telling me too. Oh, I allegedly made a derogatory TikTok towards Agile. <laughs> allegedly. Allegedly, I love it. The, I um, thought it was very. Yeah. See. Okay. This is wonderful. Okay. Hey, it's been so awesome to catch up. I am more than happy to help out in whatever capacity. Super appreciate you. Yeah, and you got to come back on. I'm going to go program Rust tonight. Love it. Okay. Thanks, Bo. Thanks so much. See you in the next one. Bye-bye. Where's the bye, Brooke? Bye.